desert. There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this very similar to what was said earlier in chapter 20. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. The Israelites moved on and camped at Oboth towards the sunrise. From there they moved on and camped at the Zered Valley. They set out from there and camped along the Arnon, which is in the desert extending into Amorite territory. The Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Marley Park to Knock Cree. Knock Cree to Roundwood, Roundwood to Glendalough, Glendalough to Glenmalure. Or what about this? St. Jean-Pierre de Port to Ronceval, Ronceval to Zubiri, Zubiri to Pamplona, Pamplona to Puente la Reina, Puente la Reina to Estella. The staging posts of the Wicklow Way, or if you're a little more adventurous, the Camino de Santiago. Not the most exciting read, but if you're doing the hike, it is essential reading, not just in terms of being able to define where you're going, but also to look back and see how far you've come. Each of those stages, if you're doing the hikes or the pilgrimages, will have their own memories, people you met along the way, breathtaking views, hard slogs, milestones towards a destination. Now today, Adam and Debbie and the Jones family, we come to another staging post for you. Carrick Mines to Trinity College. Trinity College to Kirkintilloch. Kirkintilloch to Leighton Buzzard. Leighton Buzzard to Greystones. Greystones to Manchester. And now Manchester to the world. Roads. Some of them have been long. There have been mountains and valleys. But they're places full of what the Bible calls Ebenezers, symbols that say, up until now, the Lord has helped us. He is still with us, and he will go before us. Now, for many of us, the book of Numbers is perhaps the least familiar book of the Pentateuch, the first five books. But having looked at it a little through the pandemic and through a time of transition in our own church, I have come to see it as a great metaphor of the believer's journey with Christ. Now, Moses, of course, didn't have the benefit of either Ordnance Survey or Google Maps. It is full of an entire travelogue, 42 staging posts from Egypt right through to the Promised Land, places like Hor and Zalmona, Zalmona and Punon, and we read some of them at the end of that passage I've just finished reading in chapter 21. Many of these names are no longer in existence. In fact, because it's a wilderness, it's likely that the Israelites themselves named the places, gave them names. One means the place of water brooks. One means the plateau. One of them poignantly means the place of many graves. Moses noted them all down. And they also there is the extra biblical evidence in chapter 21 of where some of them were. 
And part of that journey that we see in chapter 33, if you look around verse 44, is the bit covered in today's chapters, chapter 21, from Oboth to Ai Barim in the wilderness that is opposite Moab towards the sunrise. Milestones, looking back at where they've come from and looking forward to what lies ahead. Now you remember, the Israelites are in the wilderness because of their disbelief and their disobedience, destined for a generation's worth, 40 years of wandering. And the actual 40 years of wandering is, is encapsulated just in a very short part of Numbers. The first part of Numbers is the journey from Sinai, where they got the law, uh, up to Kadesh Barnea. And then the red, starting at chapter 20, is where they move to the promised land. So we skip over a lot of those 40 years of wilderness, wandering, thousands of people living a nomadic existence in a wilderness. 39 years have passed, and in chapter 20, we come to the start of the final journey to the promised land. 39 years. 39 years ago, for those of you who can remember, Frankie goes to Hollywood, we're number one in the charts with two tribes. The first Apple Macintosh personal computer was released. Liverpool beat Roma in the European Cup final. And for those of you still living off that, let me remind you that was 39 years ago. We're moving on this morning to the promised land. And so we come to this momentous event. The cloud lifts, the cloud that told them to stay or to go. It finally lifts and the start of the final travelogue. And by the time we reach verse 20 of chapter 21, we hear Pisgah, the place where Moses was to die. But there's a lot still to happen. It's possible, Adam, that there have been times during this, in the passage that was read in 1 Corinthians 10. All our ancestors ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. It's not surprising then that God saw the smiting of the rock as an equivalent of smiting him. The writer of the Hebrews talks about falling away from God, sinning against the Spirit, as crucifying or smiting Christ all over again. But there's good news in this passage because the water still came. There was provision for their needs. There was grace towards the grumblers. In spite of their grumbling, in spite of Moses' failure, God still provided a river of water. In John chapter 7, Jesus said, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were later to receive. Your role, Adam, in the days ahead will be to introduce students across Europe to the rock that can quench their thirst. There'll be times you will be frustrated and tempted to lose the map. Students can grumble as much as anyone else. We know that. And you may want to complain to God. Don't smite them or him in your frustration. Speak to him. Pray earnestly for those you're working with that he would bring water to the thirsty souls whether it is in Bosnia or Poland or Romania or Slovakia. And the second main story is, of course, the one in chapter 21 that I read, the story of the bronze snake. The people grumble again a bit more seriously, insulting God's gift of manna. 
There's something a bit of the grumpy teenager here, isn't there? What's for dinner tonight, mum? Oh, not pasta again. They were impatient because they had to take yet another long detour, as we will see, round Edom. But when there was repentance on the part of some, there was grace. There was a way to be saved from this plague. They just had to look at the snake that Moses made. Now, there was nothing magical about the snake. It could have been anything. It was just that God was giving the Israelites an opportunity to show that they truly wanted to honor him and were prepared to follow and obey him. If they couldn't do something as simple as look at a snake, then what chance did they have of living obediently for him in the new land? There's a fascinating incident many centuries later in 2 uh, Kings chapter 18. Good King Hezekiah starts his spiritual reforms, and we read, He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. So the snake survived. It became a relic, became an idol. They even gave it a name. They burned incense to it. And so Hezekiah decided, the snake's got to go. There was nothing magical about it. The power came from God. It was a test to see whether or not the people were prepared to accept God's way of salvation. John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so says Jesus, I must be lifted up, and all who look to me will have eternal life. Four times in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks of being lifted up. Twice in these archaic chapters of Numbers, we have two images of Christ, the rock who supplies the water of life, and the one who is lifted up to save those who look to him. The snake bites were all universal. Everybody got them. They were bitten. But not everyone looked. It was a simple remedy, but for whatever reason, not everybody availed of it. Maybe their anger at Moses and God was too great. They refused the cure that seemed so trite and easy. When I started doing evangelism and apologetics with young people and students, one of the most common objections I would hear 25 to 30 years ago would be, I'm not good enough to be a Christian probably a reflection on a particularly bad religious upbringing. Being a Christian was this ideal of perfection, and most people's understanding of their own inner life was such that they would say, I could never be that good. It's not the case now. The biggest challenge we have is persuading people that they do have a need, that yes, they're not good enough. All of us, ourselves included, are sinners. In fact, Talk like that, and it's roundly condemned in many circles. People will despise being told that they are sinners. What's more, being a Christian now is interpreted as something you would never want to be. And of course, we must bear some of the blame for that. And yet, it's symptomatic of a more serious illness in our contemporary world, that of autonomy. I make the rules. I'm okay as I am. And that's the message that the gospel needs to break down. Both the self-righteous religious person and the anti-religious person both believe they're okay. They don't need to look at the cross. The Christian uniquely believes that we are not okay. We can do nothing except look at Christ. Just as in the wilderness, all have been bitten, but not all will look. We have all been bitten by the serpent and the poison of sin is within us, but a cure is available. Look at the one who became sin for us. Look and be healed. Your role, Adam, is to introduce people to the rock who can quench their thirst 
and to lift Jesus up so that those who will look on him will be saved. Many will maybe understand the symbol of the cross, but there's nothing magical in the cross any more than there was anything magical in the snake. It's the one who is on the cross, lifted up, that we can be healed. But let me use the rest of the time this morning just to point out some things I hope will be helpful for you from the rest of these chapters. We have those two stories that are quite well known, but there's a lot of text surrounding them. Is it all padding? Well, I don't think so. There are stories that we've just looked at foreshadowing the work of Jesus on the cross and the Spirit, but there are other stories about living as God's people, and I think they're useful and instructive, not just for Adam and Debbie as they go forward, but for all of us. Stories of death and grieving and war and international travel and visas. I believe they show us the various ways in which God, by His Spirit, gives us the grace that we need for the journey. So first of all, we have to journey through times of mourning and transition. Chapter 20 begins and ends with a significant death, the death of Miriam at the beginning and the death of Aaron. And in chapter 21, we get a little hint of where Moses will die. The first generation will go. There's a sense of sadness and regret, I'm sure, as Aaron is stripped of his robes because he knows all too well his own failures that led him there. But there's a sense of passing on the baton, a little bit like what we see uh, on a football pitch when the captain leaves and he takes off the armband and hands it to somebody else as he leaves the pitch. The ministry will continue. Adam, you're experiencing that at the moment with UCCF. From Adam to Boaz. Sounds like a very abridged Old Testament genealogy, doesn't it? We've left a few people out in the middle there somewhere. But learning that it's time to pass on the responsibility. But with that comes an equal assurance that God goes before you as you assume a new area of leadership. There will be grieving, but the dominant theme is not about the temporary leadership of Aaron, Miriam, or Moses, but the eternal leadership of God as he guides his people. You were not indispensable to UCCF. But neither will you, nor I, nor anyone else we work with be indispensable to IFES. But we have the privilege of being given the opportunity to be God's servants while we are here. And then those stories of what I call international travel and visa entrance problems. I hope you're not going to have the same problems that we're having with the Indonesian website for visas for our World Assembly. Just a little bit of advice, get started as soon as you can. But what I think we can learn from those stories in chapter 20 from 14 to 21 and chapter 20. The Amorites, on the other hand, were one of the Canaanite nations to be dispossessed for their wickedness, and there was actually no other way to get to Canaan except through that territory. So in those two similar but different stories, we see the need to exercise wisdom and choose our battles. In one case, it was worth suffering personal inconvenience to avoid unnecessary conflict. In the other, it was an essential battle in order to be faithful to God's calling. We need to have the wisdom to know which battles, social, political, personal, cultural, theological, to fight in our churches or in our cultures, and which we need to just take the longer way around. So there is wisdom, and there's wisdom in waiting. 
Chapter 21 begins with a victory at a battle of Hormah. Now, they'd already tried to do that 39 years before in chapter 14 without God's approval, and they were roundly defeated. And that led to their 39 years wandering. But now it was the right time to fight. There would be plenty of battles ahead. And this short victory at the start of this final year gives them encouragement for what lies ahead. Wise leadership is about having the wisdom and sensitivity to wait for God's timing. And at the end of chapter 21, we have the third issue of of choosing our battles. Victories against the Amorites and a magnificently named Og, king of Bashan. He seems to be in a giant of a man if you look at Deuteronomy 3. And when the Psalms recite the victories of Israel, Og gets a mention a few times. So he was quite a character. The Amorites, they needed to beat to get to the land. Og, they needed to beat since he would have been a constant threat to their staying in the region. Ephesians chapter 6 speaks of the armor of God. And the New Testament is not shy about the reality of spiritual warfare. Unwise and unnecessary battles will cause heartache to us and others. But every justified battle for the truth and for God's honor will strengthen you for the task ahead. As the Israelites were prepared for the conquest by those initial battles, we can't underestimate how every victory that we gain by the Spirit over any temptation, over any idolatry, over besetting sins, over spiritual compromise, over unbelief or self-centeredness. Every victory strengthens us for the battles to come. So we take heart in small victories. And then finally, in chapter 21 from verses 10 to 20, we have that travelogue, what I would call journaling the journey journaling the journey. Moses charted these places, see it in chapter 33. There would have been a sense of progression, of order, of completeness, the fact of journal, noting those staging points of your life. Or friends at Grosvenor, if you did it, noting the staging points of this fellowship from its foundation through various pastors, you would be able to give thanks for those staging posts, celebrating as you look ahead to where he's leading you next. Or think of our own lives. What has been our history? Family influence, conversion to Christ, spiritual renewal, growth when we were students, maybe baptism, things that God has taught us, milestones of his grace and faithfulness in spite of our weakness and grumbling. It helps sometimes to journal the journey. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. In verse 16, we read, From there they continued to bear the well where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together, and I will give them water. What was their biggest complaint? We have no water. It's too dry. But as they move forward under God, we have a record that When they don't complain, God knows and God provides. God knows and God provides. Adam and Debbie will be praying for that, that they will have the spiritual but also the practical and financial provision that they will need to complete this task. And thank you for the part that you play and will continue to play in that with prayer and practical support. 
Amid all the challenges and opportunities and activities and grumbling and encouragements and decisions and administration and planning meetings and meetings with your horrible supervisor, all of those things that lie ahead of you, Adam, don't forget to take time to be thankful. This is my final point. Learn to sing even in the wilderness. In verses 17 to 18, we have preserved for us this ancient song of the well, a work song like the laborer's songs in the mines or the slave songs in the plantations. The people strike water, and what is a pleasant change from their grumbling, they actually break out in praise. Let that be a word for all of us here this morning. It's no accident that at times of renewal, there is an upsurge in hymn and songwriting. Often some of the most famous songs have been written out of a context of tragedy or wilderness. It is well with my soul. Abide with me. Blessed be your name. There is a redeemer. In fact, in these chapters, there are a couple of songs. Because when we're walking by the Spirit, as we experience the innumerable ways in which God continues to provide grace for the journey, we sing. If rebellious and grumpy Israelites can do it at a well in the wilderness, how much more should we who know Christ and have drunk from the rock and have seen him lifted up, how much more should we not hold back in praise? He gives us grace for each step of the journey. So let's learn to sing. In every circumstances, let us breathe deep and drink deeply of him. Let's sing the song of the divine well, asking the Spirit to spring up within our lives that we might be refreshed, that we might overflow in refreshing others as our prayer for Adam, and that we might live to his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that up until now, your grace has been with us, even at times when it has been hidden from our sight. We give you thanks that you have given us the promise that you go before us. And we pray that that would be true of Adam and Debbie at this time. We give you thanks for this next staging post on the journey. We pray that it will be a place of wells, of refreshing, where they can drink deeply from you, the rock, where they can point others to look at the one who has been lifted up and who alone has the ability to give us the salvation and the healing for our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.